Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents Podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents CAF Chats. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Dave Seagraves, United States Marine Corps, and with me is Major James Barrett, Faculty, Criminal Law Division, T. Jaglix. And we also have a special guest with us today. Rebecca Coaches, a summer intern from West Virginia University College of Law. Outstanding. Today we're going to be discussing United States versus Airman A.C. Smith, United States Air Force. Rebecca, would you tell us what this case is about? Yes. So this is a sexual assault case that focuses on whether the military judge erred in admitting text messages under the hearsay exception under Military Rules of Evidence 803, and if the evidence produced was legally sufficient to prove that the victim was not capable of consenting. And 803, at least this portion of it, is we're talking about cited utterances. Correct. And so he goes to court-martial, he's convicted, what did he receive? So the appellant was dishonorably discharged, he was confined for 60 days, and received a reduction to E1. Can you tell us some of the facts about this case? Yes. So the appellant and the victim were friends. They met while they were both assigned to Fort Gordon in Georgia. At the time, the victim was in a long-distance relationship with a Marine. Hoorah. She did not have a romantic relationship with the appellant, although they did socialize regularly. The appellant and the victim drove from Fort Gordon in Georgia to Charlotte, North Carolina to attend a concert. They planned to stay the night, so they booked a hotel that had two beds. The two go to the concert where they order multiple alcoholic drinks. And as the night went on, they both took turns waiting in line to buy drinks. The victim later testified that she was drunk, she was dizzy, and she had consumed at least three strong drinks. She had not eaten anything since she arrived at the concert venue. The last thing she remembers was falling onto a bed at the hotel. So essentially sending the scene, you have uh, two airmen uh, that are friends, just friends, decide to go to a concert a number of hours away from their base, uh, have a plan. They're going to save money, get one hotel room with two beds, but they have to go right to the concert because they get off late and they, they start drinking. And then what happens? So once they arrive to the hotel room, it's very important to note that the victim was fully clothed when she went to bed. So then the next morning, she woke up and she was in bed with the appellant. So when she went to bed the night before, the agreement was that they were both sleeping in two separate beds. That's why they got a hotel room with two separate beds. So when she woke up, she was in bed with the appellant. His arm was draped around her. She was naked. She didn't remember how her clothes were removed. So she goes to the bathroom and she noticed that she had some vaginal soreness and some bleeding. When she went to get dressed, she could not find her underwear. And eventually, she found her underwear, but they were underneath, shoved underneath the pillow, and they were torn through the hip. So on the way out of, out of town, the appellant and the victim stopped at a gas station 
So the victim goes to use the bathroom, and while she's in the bathroom, she looks in the mirror, and she sees some hickeys on her neck, some handprints, and another hickey on her collarbone. She freaked out. She felt nauseous. She started to shake. She messaged one of her friends through the social media platform Snapchat, explaining that she thought the appellant had raped her. When she sent the message, she was still experiencing her hands shaking, nausea, some sweating. And then on the way back to Fort Gordon, she confronted the appellant. She asked why they were in bed together. And he had told her that she had urinated on the other bed. So after that happened, she makes a claim of sexual assault, uh, reports it, and then OSI, the Air Force Special Investigators, uh, they started an investigation. What happened then? Yes, so the appellant originally claimed that he could not remember the evening very well. He eventually comes out and says that what he was admitted was untrue, and he acknowledged having some sort of sexual contact with the victim. So he's read his 31 Bravo rights by OSI, and basically, you know, telling him his rights before making statements. He waived those rights, uh, and the first statement he provides, as you said, tries to kind of clam up a little bit, say he doesn't remember very well, makes some admissions, but then they bring him in again, bring him his rights again, and then he kind of spills the beans on a whole lot more stuff. Correct. All right. So then, as you said before, goes to trial, gets convicted, uh, leads us to the appeal. What are the issues that were raised on this appeal? Yes. So there were two issues in this case. The first one being whether the military judge erred in admitting text messages and testimony as an excited utterance related to the alleged victim's belief that she was raped where she had no memory of the events in question. And the second one being whether the evidence was legally insufficient because the alleged victim was capable of consenting and where, even if she was not capable of consenting, the appellant reasonably believed that she did consent. So then what was the holding on those issues? So the military judge did not abuse his discretion by admitting the victim's electronic messages as an excited utterance and therefore could not show plain error on appeal. That's right. The appellant could not show plain error and satisfy those three prongs. Rebecca, why don't you go and tell us about those three prongs for plain error? So the appellant bears the burden of establishing one error that is two clear or obvious and three results in material prejudice to his substantial rights. And that comes from a case of United States versus Knapp citing to United States versus Brooks. And how do we analyze whether something should come in as an excited utterance? So the proponent of the excited utterance has a burden to show by a preponderance of the evidence that each element is met. That comes from United States versus Henry. The three elements of this case are, one, the statement must be spontaneous, excited, or impulsive rather than the product of reflection and deliberation. Two, the event, the one that prompts the utterance, must be startling. And three, the declarant must be under the stress of excitement caused by the event. And then we're talking about legal sufficiency, the uh, second issue, calf, uh, the calf granted on. How do we determine that? So the test for legal sufficiency is whether, after viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the prosecution, any rational trier of fact could have found the essential elements of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. 
And this comes from United States versus Robinson, quoting United States versus Rosario. Now, Rebecca, you've already uh, spoiled the result for us. Uh, the case was affirmed. Uh, but go ahead and tell us why it was affirmed. So in regards to the first issue, the court needed to establish whether the text messages, the ones that were sent via Snapchat, were admissible under MRE 803-2, excited utterance. The court looked to the three elements established in Arnold. These elements of the case are the statement must be spontaneous, excited, or impulsive, rather than the product of reflection and deliberation, that the event that prompts the utterance must be startling, and the declarant must be under the stress of excitement caused by the event. So they, the CAFS says that the first element was met because the message was a spontaneous outburst prompted by the victim's thought. Upon her looking in the mirror, she noticed the bruises for the t- first time that she might have been a victim of sexual assault. The text message that said, I think he raped me, was the first message sent to her friend after the victim saw the bruises for the first time while she was in the bathroom. The second element of the test was met because the victim had no recollection as to how she got these unexplained extensive injuries. Her immediate reaction to seeing these was freaking out. The victim explained that she began to shake. She felt nauseated. When she was having this reaction, she recalled the discoveries of the blood, the vaginal soreness, from earlier in the day at the hotel. During her distress, she reached out via Snapchat to her friend, texting her, I think he raped me. When she sent this message, her hands were shaking, she was feeling nauseous, and she was sweating. And then lastly, the third element was met because the victim was under the stress of excitement caused by the event when she uttered the message. When determining if the third element was met, the physical and mental condition of the declarant and the last lapse of time between the startling event and this and the statement were taken into consideration. Immediately after the message was sent, once again, her hands were shaking, she was nauseous, she was sweating. So it was within the military judge's discretion to conclude that she was under the stress of excitement caused by the event. So really the... Not to skip ahead to the takeaway, but uh, the foundation was was very key here for the government counsel to elicit these type of facts from the victim to allow the judge to make the necessary conclusions to get to where we are today. Okay. Now, we also have one last issue, legal sufficiency. Tell us how we got there, Rebecca. Yes. So the appellant believed that the evidence demonstrated that the victim could consent, did consent, and the appellant reasonably believed that the victim consented. The CAF found that the evidence was legally sufficient to establish that the victim was incapable of consenting, and the appellant knew or reasonably should have known that she was incapable of consenting. So the appellant's statements to the victim and to law enforcement filled in many of the gaps in the victim's recollection, and it supported a finding that he knew or reasonably should have known that the victim was incapable of consenting due to intoxication. Although the appellant told law enforcement that the victim was an active, willing participant in the sexual activity, he admitted that he knew it was wrong to engage in sexual activity with her because she was drunk. The government presented sufficient evidence to establish that the victim was incapable of consenting Due to her impairment by intoxication, the appellant should have known or knew that she was incapable of consenting. 
Then at trial, the military judge recognized that the evidence raised the defense of mistake of fact as to consent and instructed the member accordingly. The government then introduced sufficient evidence for a reasonable trier of fact that was not reasonable under all these circumstances. To establish his belief wasn't reasonable under the circumstances. So, great. What is uh, what is your takeaway for the field, Rebecca? So, for the field, while building your case, you want to build your record as much as you can. It's also beneficial to use your motions in limine. So, file those motions. Motions in limine give the court more information to see if one should go forward or not. And you don't want to find something out in trial that you did not already know. And it also helps plan your case, helps you forecast what's coming in so you can build your strategy around some uh, evidence that you know is going to come in. Uh, Also, one of my takeaways is uh, just make sure you're articulating objections and articulating your position of why you believe something early and often uh, as you want to object to uh, evidence coming in or judges various rulings sir over to you well just a double tap the motions eliminate thing because i like to hit that at all my classes uh, it helps define your battlefield uh, the more information you know about what's going to come in what's not going to come in that can lead to plea agreements because both sides have a better idea of what the case is going to look like i think you said it also before whenever you're talking about excited utterances i think james uh, highlighted you, you really need to look, lay on the foundation hard you need to show those outward manifestations of why that person's in that fight or flight scenario that gives you the excited utterance. I think just a little bit of takeaway in why some people might have wondered about this case and, and the ruling overall was that there was time that had elapsed. We said it, uh, there was a good amount of time between when she woke up and when they went to that gas station. Uh, but time is integral to 803, you know, one, present sense impression, you know, that, you know you're past 40 minutes from seeing something, you're past that. But here, you know, CAF decided that, you know, time isn't as important as those outward manifestations of the excitement. Um, I think you also hit uh, in your brief, a little bit at least the written portion, that um, there's no requirement that the excited utterance has to be about the underlying offense itself. Correct. So just to clarify that, they said, uh, CAF said the, the excited utterance was about you know, or caused by when she saw those handprints and those hickeys, etc. But it was related to, because that's in the language of the excited utterance exception, it's related to the sexual assault as well. Correct. And I just wanted to, to jump on as well to say the, the excited utterance is related to the startling event. And here, the manifestation of her, her, her memory or what she was seeing was what brought upon the startling event that allowed the excited utterance to come in so thank you i artfully said that um but also we takeaways is a question of where the trial counsel really needed this because we talked about the two different statements we didn't hit all the stuff in them but one he admitted he lied during the first one so that's already uh, getting a false exculpatory statement instruction going out there you also have him admitting finally that she not just urinated on one bed uh, but also both beds, well as they got kicked out of the concert because she couldn't stand. The fact that she couldn't unlock her phone for them uh, to find the address of the hotel, that the taxi driver or Uber driver, whichever service it was, actually had to help them into the hotel as well. There was a lot of different evidence that should have been able to sustain a conviction. So kind of a question of, if you don't do the motion to eliminate, also think about, do you need this? And are you creating a legal issue 
that might make you do it again. Always a always a fair consideration. Uh, and every time you're doing trial work, you need to make sure that you have a purpose. And as some people have, have said famously, why? Why are you doing this? And if you can answer the why and have a good informed decision that's not made in a vacuum, then that's what practicing law is all about, making informed decisions and, and having a good legal basis and a reason why you're doing what you're doing. Any other closing thoughts, Rebecca? I don't think so, but I would just like to thank Major Barrett and Colonel Seagraves for their time today and their support during my time here at the Judge Advocate School and Center. That's right, because you're, you're gone in a, in a day or two, right? Yes. So, yes, tomorrow's my last day. So. Well, we've enjoyed having you. I uh, wish you the best of luck at West Virginia and hope to see you as a uh, Judge Advocate at the OBC in a couple years. Thank you so much. You've been a great addition to the team. Uh, I know you've uh, applied for direct commission, so uh, if anyone's out there listening, um, I want to approve that application. Uh, hopefully, we'll have you come through here as a basic course student in a year or two. Yes, hopefully. All right. Well, thank you, listeners. I appreciate you tuning in to this episode of Criminal Law Department Presents CAF Chats. We appreciate you sharing this time with us. And as Major Josh Mickelson would say, don't forget to smash that subscribe button. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's or the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Thanks, counsel, for both sides. And the court will stand in recess until further order of the court.